welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Now let's get right into the main topic of today, dating. Uh, where today we're largely going to be talking about relative dating, um, and then next time we'll get into absolute dating. And pretty soon we're going to learn what the difference is. So dating is just putting things in order or putting things in time. Relative dating is how old is something relative to something else. So here we can only say older or younger. Um, we, can't, we can sometimes say much older or much younger. But again, it's all relative terms. We're not saying things like it's 100 years older than this or 200 years younger than this. It's just putting them in the straight order. Measuring time, um, absolute dating, that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it gives you an absolute date. Now, sometimes that date is a range. Say this is between 150 and 200 years old. That's still an absolute date because it is tying events or items to a linear time structure, which is something that we use in the Western industrialized world, but is not necessarily something that is used by all cultures in all places. So at best, we can consider it to be a heuristic device, um, something that we use to analyze the world around us. Um, whether or not it's recognized by the group that we're studying is another story. So that's um, what scheme will we use for absolute dating? Uh, different cultures, like I said, use different time schemes. And it's, you know, it would be rather arbitrary of me to say, we're going to use something that's uncommon, um, but it happens. Uh, mostly, we use BCE and CE. This stands for Before Common Era or Common Era, which is exactly equivalent to BC and AD. However, as um, AD means Anno Domini, uh, which is you know, possessive year of our Lord, um, assumes that our is talking about everybody being on the Christian calendar, which they're not. So we tend not to use that because that is uh, religiously derived. And I mean, honestly, it's the same. Like, you know, this year is 2017. Oops, a uh, AD 2017 or 2017 CE, same thing. Um, so, you know, it's kind of just like putting a hat on a pig and calling it something else. But that's what it is. Um, Right, so we don't necessarily use AD, uh, although I'm not going to dock you if you use AD and BC instead of BC and CE, uh, although that is more common in archaeology. Um, we don't use the, you know, the Jewish calendar. We don't use the Maya calendar. We don't use a lot of these different calendars, although sometimes you'll see when people are studying one society that has their own calendar, they will cross-reference, say, the Maya calendar date and the Western date. Okay. Direct dating, 
Direct dating is when you're dating the object itself. So imagine a coin that's minted in 1776. You're dating that object. It says 1776 on it, made, uh, or a serial number, or something that says when that object is made. That's direct dating. If you can direct, directly date that object. Uh, sometimes there's a, say, a particular style of um, beer can that only had, you know, a, a very limited edition release uh, image on it of, I don't know, what do you put on beer cans? Uh, football helmets from a, uh, and it was only put out, you know, for this Super Bowl. It had the two football helmets for the two teams that played. I forget who they were. I'm just kidding. Um, that would be a way of direct dating, right? We know exactly what year that's from. Indirect dating is if you're looking, let's say you find a collapsed house and you're digging through it and you find coins all from 2017 or something like that, or you find a whole bunch of food with expiration dates in 2017, then you can date that house collapse to 2017, potentially. We'll talk a little bit more about the nuance of that in a minute. Um, but you can potentially date that through indirect dating, where you're dating something that is connected to, but not the exact same thing you're dating. Right? It's connected to it through some sort of association. It's indirect dating. Okay. So, if we look at this sim uh, shockingly similar drawing to our worksheet that we were working on the other day, this coin is that the the date on the coin an indirect or a direct date? Indirect. How so? Yeah, so, well, it's kind of a trick question. Uh, you're right. In, uh, you could say a direct or indirect, depending on what you're looking at. If you're looking at the coin itself, if you want to date the coin, it's a direct date because it's on there. It's dating that coin. However, if you want to talk about this fill, then it's an indirect date because a coin from 1723 is associated with this fill, then it's indirect. So a direct date on a coin is only direct for that coin. It's indirect for the things around it. I think I just spoiled my next question. Okay, nope, I didn't. So is that absolute or relative? Yeah. Absolute. Right, yeah. The, the, the coin itself, it would be absolute. And we'll talk about how we can combine them here in a little bit. And so I already answered that question because I'm super awesome. Okay. Uh, so what would be an indirect dating in this example? The um, backfilled clay subsoil could be indirectly dated from it, as can other things. And we'll talk about how that works here in just a moment. So stratigraphy, uh, we've kind of touched on this with the law of superposition. Stratigraphy is the relative position uh, of layers indicates chronology. The relative position of layers indicates chronology. When we're talking about dating with stratigraphy, not stratigraphy itself. Stratigraphy itself is just the layers. When we're talking about it in a context of dating, the layers, the relative position of layers indicates the relative chronology. So in this example, we're looking at a profile. And here we have some sort of base level into which these um, 
stone pillars or foundations have been inserted. And then it looks like a floor was laid down. And then on top of that was some sort of occupation debris, like a dirty floor covering, you know, so um, it could be just dirt accumulated. It could also be like a grody carpet, if this is a more modern sort of thing. And then there's destruction level. So something happened and destroyed this, and it got filled in. And then there's been some time for a topsoil to grow organically over it. So if we wanted to look at uh, the stratigraphy of this, we're going to talk about the different layers and how they relate to one another. So we know that um, we know that this construction fill here, or this construction level, predates the stone floor support through law of superposition. Same thing with the, um, the occupation debris that is later than the, store, the floor, and this is later than what's below it, and the topsoil is the latest. So that would be, well, we don't know how much. We don't know if they built this with a stone floor and they used the stone floor for 10 years and then they put a grody carpet on there. We don't know how long between those two. And then we don't know how long until the destruction layer happened. We don't know, because it's relative. Now, two really important Latin phrases that we use, and we almost always use, <coughs> excuse me, terminus postquem. Uh, terminus antiquem is not as common. Uh, terminus antiquem and terminus postquem, or TPQ, just because it's a fun abbreviation, um, they mean time before which and time after which, respectively. Um, this is a type of law that says, for example, it's a, it's a way to indirectly date something. And this is how we tie absolute and relative dates together. So put yourself in the mindset of you know, running time, kind of like watching it on time lapse. The time after which TPQ, uh, so if we know that there's a coin from 1723 in this soil, after what date must the soil have been put in there? The only date we're dealing with, right? 1723. There's no way. OK, there's no realistic way that we're going to get a coin from 1723 in this fill if it came before 1723, unless someone's making fake coins from the future, or somebody is like putting a coin on a stick and like shoving it down. In like, no realistic way that we're going to get a coin from 1723 in this fill on any date before 1723. So the TPQ for this layer is 1723. It has to come after. It could come in 1723, so greater than or greater than or equal to 1723. Um, you know, it could be a brand new coin that fell into the hole as they were filling it. It could be that my great uncle had his really early American coin from 1720. I guess it wouldn't be an American coin at that point. Uh, British colony coin from 1723 in his pocket when we dug this out last weekend. And it fell through a hole in his pocket and fell in there. Well, 2017 is after 1723. We just don't know how far after, right? So time after which does not say exactly how much time has passed. Now, technically, 
if you know that the TPQ of this clay soil is 1723, anything that comes on top of it in the, in the um, law of superposition is going to be younger than it. So the TPQ of the things above it are um, 1723, which kind of goes, could get you in trouble here. because or no, no, that will work out actually. Um, 1770, right? So everything above this is younger than 1723 because it has to come after this layer was laid down. So that's how we tie them together. Um, and a coin is just the easiest example. Um, so that you can ask the same question, what's the TPQ of this black unnamed cap or whatever it is? Well, it's going to be around 1770. The pottery doesn't have an actual date stamped on it, but from catalogs and things, we can often tell an approximate um, creation time for pottery, uh, historic pottery. And so if this black bar, which is on top of, what is this, this gray clay, um, if that black bar is 1770, and so that layer had to be made in 1770 or later, we can what's called sandwich it, right? So this has to come after 1773, and it doesn't have to come before 1770, because you know that piece of pottery might have been made in 1770 and used for 20 years. So let's say it was broken in 1790, and then it was buried in there. This could be have been put down in 1780, and that still would have worked out. But we can kind of sandwich it in, in knowing that the TPQ of, of this is 1723, but everything past here is 1770. So we know we're dealing with a, a, a bit of a absolute chronology, but still, it's all based on relative placement. Okay, bone age. Uh, we can't It's not really the world's greatest dating technique, but it's certainly in there. Um, the only way that really we use bone age is to look in, at two bones found in the same context to make sure that they're the same age old. And the only reason I bring it up is because one of the most famous um, one of the most famous fakes of all time was the Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was found in the early 1900s. Actually, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes, was a big, um, a big um, friend of, I think, Dawson, one of the two guys who found it. And basically what it was, was back then they thought human evolution went from the very earliest of uh, humanity to today by evolving, um, having a very ape-like body, and, um, and then growing a larger brain. And in fact, we see like very upright human-like bodies, and then our brains get bigger. So, uh, so what they did was they found an honest-to-goodness old skull, and then they stuck an orangutan jawbone on it, so it looked like it had this very apish uh, prognathic or sticking-out face. So that would fit into the evolutionary time scheme or um, evolutionary trajectory that was thought to be correct at the time, which we now know is not. And through bone aging techniques, uh, a couple different chemical techniques, they were able to show that the orangutan jawbone was actually modern 
and had not been subjected to the same conditions as the skull, and therefore they weren't chronologically the same. So one was relatively older or younger than the other. That's it's a famous example. That's why I bring it up. It's probably not something I've ever it's nothing I've ever used, and I don't actually know anyone who's used it. But now we come on to the two most common um, types of relative dating: uh, contextual and frequency seriation. Sequencing and seriation are incredibly important, and we still use them today. Even though we have carbon dating, it takes 400 bucks or so to do a carbon date. This is free. It just takes a heck of a lot of time. What are they? Um, typological sequencing uses change of style or types over time to create a chronology. It uses change of style or types over time to create a chronology. What style of pot this pottery came first? Which came second? Which came third? Or which type of tool was used for harvesting grain first, second, third, right? You can think about Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age as a type of sequencing. So the first that we'll talk about, um, I, we can use all kinds of modern examples. Uh, Coke bottles change over time. Clothing changes a lot. Phones, phones are my favorite to talk about. Contextual seriation um, is the change of associated artifacts over time to create chronologies. The change of associated artifacts over time. That's going to differentiate from frequency because it's multiple artifacts found in association with one another, contextual seriation. They're in context with one another. And because of that, we can put them together. For example, um, let me see if I can give a modern, do I have a modern example here? Phones, uh, cell phones change over time. And while there might be a span where we're all using the brand new iPhone, what's iPhone now? What's the newest? Six? Seven? I use Android, so I don't know. So uh, iPhone 7. So there's going to be a whole span of time where we're using the iPhone 7 or where it's in circulation. And within that time, there might be other artifacts that we could use to. Um, to date them. Let's go really digital and let's talk about like apps, right? Maybe there's an app that becomes very popular at the beginning of the adoption of the iPhone 7, which falls out of frequency later on as the iPhone 8, you know, next month when the iPhone 8 comes out. Um, I don't know when. So let's say at the beginning of that curve, there's a couple of apps that are very popular. And then over time, different apps become popular and then they would show up. And so we can, by putting them to all these clues together, we can say, oh, well, if we have this phone and that app, it's going to be this time period versus if we found the same phone with a different app, it's going to be an earlier or later time period. So we're able to put the co-occurrence of a couple of different types of artifacts together to say when do they overlap in chronology, and then we can kind of narrow it down to that overlapping period. On the other hand, we have frequency seriation. This is the traces the waxing and waning of individual artifacts over time. Frequency seriation traces the waxing and waning of individual artifacts over time when compared to others. So keeping them separate, contextual seriation is the co-occurrence of many types of artifacts together to give you a time period. Frequency seriation 
is the rise and fall of an individual artifact. And I'll show you what I mean by that. The most famous example is headstones and their decorations in New England. Um, and when I went to undergrad in Boston, this was actually one of our projects. We had to go out to cemeteries and we had to uh, recreate this. Um, but the, this graph is called a battleship graph. And when it reaches the full width, that means 100% of the sample. So as we go up, you can see that uh, the death's head changes. It's the most common in the 1720s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then in the 1760s, it seems that a cherub uh, has been introduced, and that's taken some market share. And then over time, uh, the death's head continues to become less popular as the cherub becomes more popular until the urn and willow come in the 1790s, and then they take over market share. And by the 1810s, everybody's using urns and willows on their, um, on their headstones. Now, the cool thing is, let's say we come to a new cemetery, and all the um, inscriptions have been scrubbed off for some reason. And we can only see the decorations on the um, headstones. We can then take a frequency. We can count how many there are of the different types. And then we can compare it. Does it look like this one? Does it look like that one? Does it look like this one? And we can put it into its relative chronological position through the seriation of uh, frequency. Now, that might seem like a little esoteric and kind of like, meh, not very approachable. How about this example? Let's say we find a house in the woods that has been completely flattened. And we are sifting through the house, and we want to figure out what year was that house, or maybe a neighborhood. I don't know why there's a neighborhood in the woods, but let's say there's a sample of 10 houses. And they've all been flattened all at the same time for some reason. And we want to figure out what date that happened. Well, we could look, and we could look at how many mobile uh, phones we find how many internet routers we find, and how many fixed telephone subscriptions we find. And the relative frequency could be computed on a per capita basis or a per out of 10 basis. And we could find, oh, if we're finding lots of cell phones um, and twice as many um, internet uh, routers as we are landlines, OK, or you know, twice as many of the houses have uh, internet than landlines, and we can say, oh, OK, great. This is 2013. However, if we find that there's only twice as many cell phones as there are internet users and fixed telephone subscriptions, then we're back in 2005. Okay. Now, this is obviously an example from today, but I think it makes a little more sense when we're dealing with phenomenon and curves that we've seen in our lifetimes, right? I have to double check the math in my head. Like, no, nobody's that young. I'm sure I'll put this graph up in. Five years, and there will be people. I wasn't born at that time. Okay. Um, not quite. All right. So remember, contextual seriation is the co-occurrence of like-timed artifacts. Frequency seriation is the rise and fall of different artifacts over time, and being able to correlate those with what you find. Cross-dating is when you use seriations from across a wide area to help bolster or create your own chronology. And basically what that means is, if I'm, I did this for my dissertation, um, you guys have heard of Chichen Itza. Chichen Itza in Yucatan Peninsula was um, 13 kilometers north, um, 
uh, north-northeast of the site where I did my dissertation called Popola. And Popola was five kilometers north-northeast of Yashuna. Now, each, both Yashuna and Chichen Itza had their own um, contextual and frequency seriations. They had their own uh, pottery sequence when I said this type of pottery is, comes before this one, which comes after this one, yada, yada. And by comparing what I had to both Chichen Itza and Yashuna and other sites around, I was able to cross-state and create my own. Now, obviously, that can be dangerous because it's not like 100% never going to change the pottery uh, sequence in Chichen and Yashuna. So it's like they built houses of cards, and then I built my house of cards on top of their house of cards. So <laughs> if one of theirs comes down, it causes a reanalysis of mine. So it's not ideal. It's better if you can do it independently and then compare. But that's not always possible, depending on how you excavate, because if you don't have enough excavation data in terms of horizontal excavation, Oops, sorry, vertical excavations, you might not have that nice sequence. Whereas at Chichen and Yashuna, they have really deep pits and they got great chronology, even though that's, it's still debated, hotly debated. Because, you know, <laughs> got to hotly debate that stuff. Um, genetic dating is actually kind of neat. It uses DNA from different populations to create divergence chronologies. Uh, based on mutations. What does that even mean? So, let's say we're a population of hunter-gatherers and we live in Siberia. And, you know, uh, this circle represents our DNA. We all share pretty similar DNA because we've been of the same, you know, culture and group and area for thousands of years. Well, let's say a small group of us break off and go across the Bering Sea uh, when it's flat, or oh, sorry, when it's um, the Bering Land Bridge, when the ocean has sunk down enough that you could just walk across. And now we get over here, and our DNA, you know, within a generation or two is the same, right? But over time, once that land bridge gets closed up and we're no longer exchanging DNA with our old um, parent population, over time, as we move farther in, we're going to have little changes, little mutations in our DNA. And those mutations usually are necessarily something that's going to kill you. And mutation is kind of a technical term. It just means a change in the genetic code. And whether or not that has a good or bad effect on you is something completely different. I'm not talking X-Men here. Um, I'm just talking little bits of change. It's like you know, making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy on a photocopier. Over time, you're going to get some um, problems in there or some, some differences in there, whether or not they're good or bad. So what we can do nowadays is sequence the genomes of people from different parts of the world. And we can say, well, how similar are you to that original photocopy? And say, you know, as you're going along, there's a very specific error or a very um, significant marker that evolves in one group. And then it keeps going uh, down one branch. You can trace that back. And so what this chart is showing us is the more similar you are, the closer you are on this map. So the Germans and Georgians share a lot of genetic similarity. Um, the Evenki and the Buryat, uh, they're Siberian. 
uh, groups share a lot. Look how isolated Australians are, Aboriginal Australians, not the, not the uh, penal colony for sheep herders. Um, these are Aboriginal Australians. See how far different they are from everybody else because they've been largely isolated there for 40,000 years. Um, so when we look at this, we're looking at not necessarily real. Now, some people will put dates on this, and they'll say, oh, X percent of the genome changes over 1,000 years. Eh, I wouldn't say those rates are perfectly constant. So I wouldn't take these dates um, as anything other than uh, something we need to check out archaeologically. It's a point of comparison, really. Um, but what it's basically showing us is when uh, these are non-African peoples and these are African peoples, at one point about a million years ago, one, uh, 0.7 to 1 million years ago, um, a large group of people came out of Africa and spread across the rest of the world. Excuse me. And we share their DNA. And this is basically that genetic split off, just like I was talking about on Siberia. Imagine now this is Africa and this is the rest of the world. That's what happened here. This split here, Africans largely stayed here and everybody else diversified. And so did the Africans. They continued to diversify. So we can use DNA to show general um, movement and change over time. Now, some smart cookie did the same thing with linguistic data. Because you might have noticed, we don't talk the same as those people back in England. And so people thought, well, if languages change over time, we should be able to, almost in the same way we trace DNA, we should be able to trace those changes over time and across space. Um, and if you think about it, that makes some sense. If we listen to recordings of FDR or you know, people from the early 1900s, they speak differently than we do. And that change must be regular. Um, if you're interested, there's a field called historical linguistics where you trace those changes. And it's really fun because you can start with the Latin root and then apply these regular changes and come out with the Spanish word or what you'd estimate the Spanish word to be. Same thing with French or Portuguese. It's really fun. And if, um, and so much in the same way that we can trace unusual changes in DNA, we can trace unusual changes in languages and come up with supposed chronologies uh, for how long people have spread based on what language they speak or how they speak uh, similar languages today. The only problem is um, Swabish, guy who kind of championed this, came up with the idea that I think it was, was it 15%? 14%. Every thousand years, this was his proposition, every thousand years, 14% of your basic vocabulary will change uh, indistinguishably. So there's a 200 and a 100 word Swabish list. They're like really basic words like hand, foot, red, green, blue, uh, yes, no, mom, dad, uncle, aunt, things like that, like really basic kind of words. And if you look at the 200 list, he says that languages change constantly. And it's a constant change. So every thousand years um, out of 200 words, you're going to end up with, what's oh, that, 28? So um, 172 words that are pretty much the same, but not quite. They're, you know, they've changed enough that they're not... Um, that the remaining 28 words are completely different, right? So you only have 172 similar words. So you should be able to take the differences between languages, count up how many words they have different out of these usual lists, divide it by 14%, and that's how many thousand years they've been apart. 
obviously that doesn't work because language change over time is a variable. People in Iceland can still read Icelandic sagas from a thousand years ago, but if you try and read Beowulf, you probably can't do it. Language change is variable, so we cannot put hard and fast dates on glottochronology. It is somewhat useful for comparing the movement of languages over time, but these numbers here are complete statistical, or they're made up based on an erroneous factor. So if you ever see uh, an argument that says, these people arrived on this island 4,000 years ago based on glottal chronology, that's what they're talking about, and it's not acceptable. Okay, climatological dating. We're going to talk a lot more about pond cores, deep sea cores, and other things in, uh, when we get to the environment next. Um, but right now, I just want you to know that we also use them for dating. So a pond core is exactly what it sounds like. How is it 210 already? A pond core is exactly what it sounds like. It is um, a hollow tube, a pipe that's rammed down into the pond. And ponds are really good because they are usually kind of stagnant bodies of water. For the most part, they don't have a lot of rivers or things flowing into them. So if you have a pond, and it's going to get dust and pollen and other bric-a-brac and leaves and other crap that goes into it, and it's going to form layers on the bottom. And over time, those layers are going to build up. And then when you go in with a pipe, and you drive that pipe down and then pull it back up, you're going to get all those layers coming up with it. And so that's exactly what we see here in this image. Uh, it's kind of hard to see the layers, but they go back and forth. And when it gets cleaned up, you can see them a little better. Now, where do we get dating based on this? Well, we get changes over time in uh, the local uh, pollen, for example. And so, you know, you might get, um, right now, this background of this picture is a very temperate looking forest or maybe tropical environment. But maybe, uh, you know, a thousand years ago it was a desert and you're going to see different types of pollen. Or maybe it was more, uh, much more tropical palm trees, right? And if we know the sequence of um, faunal change over time, we can get at what this is. But a lot of that comes out of um, pond layers. <laughs> Deep sea ice cores. We'll actually talk about them again in absolute dating. Um, oh, sorry. No, that's, uh, deep sea cores are basically like a pond core, but on a much larger scale in the ocean. Similar thing. And there we're not necessarily looking at pollen. We'd be looking at things like forams, uh, which I'll talk much more about later on. Foraminifera, they're the little small shelled creatures that form uh, kind of the bottom of the food chain. We'll talk more about deep sea cores. You don't really need to know much about them yet, because we'll talk about them much more for the environmental reconstruction, but just know that they can be used for relative dating, but we don't. Same thing with ice cores. Um, ice cores actually might be better said to be absolute dating because each one of these layers with the arrows is a different year, just like trigger rings, which we're going to talk about next. And so we can use ice cores to date things, uh, but again, I'm going to talk much more about them in the environment section, so hold on to your ice core questions until then. I can Pollen dating, I kind of explained. Um, as the pollen 
regime or the plant regime changes over time and it goes from say being a, um, a pine forest to a deciduous forest to a tropical forest, the pollen are also going to change. And so by finding those pollen often in a pond core, we can give you an idea. Or if you find pollen on, um, in an archaeological context, sometimes you'll find it in a hearth. Uh, you'll find it in different places because pollen gets everywhere. If you have pollen allergies, you know pollen gets everywhere. So if you can find it inside of a house that's collapsed, you can kind of say, oh, this has tropical stuff, so it must have been in the tropical time period of this place. Same thing with faunal dating, uh, except when we're dealing with plants. Uh, we were dealing with plants, now we're dealing with animals. Remember one of the most famous finds in Clovis, New, uh, the most famous find in Clovis, New Mexico, and one of the most important finds of the early half of the 1900s was the Clovis find, where they found that uh, stone tool in association with an extinct bison. That's a type of faunal dating, where they are showing how old something is because you're finding it in context with an extinct animal. This is more likely or more common. When we're talking deep time, when we're talking about you know seven million years ago as humans split from chimpanzees, um, you know we might we might have a very different uh, extinct animals that we're finding um, our ancestors in context with, and that can help us put them in relative chronology. So faunal dating, <laughs> faunal dating. Don't misconstrue that as something. Don't Google that. Um, and then there's global events. Global events are things like. Uh, the eruption of a volcano, because when a volcano erupts, it spews out what's called tephra, Greek, uh, T-E-P-H-R-A, tephra. And let's say we're looking at our pond again here. Um, and over in the distance here, we have our volcano spewing out ash and soot and all that. And it's going to lay out a kind of a thick blanket just on everything. Right? And life will go on, and this will disappear over time, or it'll actually, better said, it'll get covered up by new soils and new layers. But let's say we take that pond core and we find that layer of tephra, and we know that you know, up here there's a house built, and the tephra layer is integrated into the house so that we can kind of you know, connect them together in chronological time period. We can cross-date, right? We can connect those up. We say, oh, there's that tephra. That event helps us put things across two different sites, maybe. Maybe there's another town on the other side of the lake, and we want to know if they were built at the same time. If the tephra is in the same sort of chronological position, then we'll know that maybe they were contemporaneous from the same time. Or if this one is already rubble, you know, and the layer's over here, and the tephra's on top of it, but the tephra is below this town, we know this town is later, and this one is earlier. Right, so global events are things like usually um, explosions or uh, eruptions of volcanoes or floods. Um, the atomic blasts spread a thin layer of atomic radiation across the world um, and actually screwed up our carbon-14 dating, hooray. So post-1950, we really can't do carbon dating anymore. Thanks a lot, U.S. government and Soviet government and every other of the eight or seven governments that do that. Anyway. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps.
The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharelike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.